This week on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture, Father Fred Gatchett talks about holiness, covenant, and the Eucharist. What does it mean to be holy? What is the difference between a contract and a covenant? Well, let's find out. Father Fred Gatchett is being interviewed by Divine Mercy Radio's on-air host, Donetta Robin. And the thing is, I think a lot of times, you know, people hear these words thrown around of, you know, like, holiness or, you know, sanctification or whatever, you know, and they go, well, those are church words, you know, I mean, that doesn't really apply to my daily life and my work and the things I do, you know, that, that's a churchy word, and, you know, they, they, you know, use that word in church, but, you know, outside the walls of church doesn't really have much meaning. Well, that's unfortunate, um, because I think a lot of times when people think of holiness, What's in their mind is probably more an idea of um, someone with an overboard piety. You know, like, for example, if you had someone that spent eight hours a day in church praying rosaries, they would go, that's a holy person. I would say, no, that's a crazy person, <laughs> okay? Um, that, that's, you know, and, you know I, what am I, you know, who am I to say? Maybe God does call some people to do that. Um, but let's face it, for the vast majority of people that have to work for a living and put meat on the table and take care of kids and, you know, take care of sick kids and get kids to school and, you know, run their business and whatever it is they have to do, they're not going to have time to spend all day in church praying. And so then is that to say then that such a person cannot be holy? Well, absolutely not. Um, one of, you know, one of the cornerstone teachings of the Second Vatican Council was the universal call to holiness. And, you know, that all of us are called to holiness. Well, we're going to talk about exactly what that is here in just a second. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, the, the, the idea then that holiness, well, that's what the priests and the sisters do. You know, the, they, they do the print. No, 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 no. Holy, you know, if there's a universal call to holiness, we're all called to it. Well, I think that to understand what holiness is and the reason why it's not for whims is because it's tough. But probably a better word for holiness you know, another cognate from English would be wholeness or balance or, you know, to use the Hebrew word shalom, which, you know, is translated as peace, and we'll talk about that in a second. But, um, but again, you know, with holiness being wholeness, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the Catholic group Opus Dei, you know, by, that was founded by St. Um, Jose Maria Escriva, you know, his, his idea was, you know, let's get God into the workplace, you know, let's get God in, you know, let's, let's make sure we take God to the, you know, to baseball practice, you know, and things like that. Um, the, uh, the idea that, um, that, again, there would be this balance, there would be this wholeness that we, you know, we have our work, which is necessary. We have our play, which is necessary. Um, we have our prayer, which is necessary, and so on. And so holiness is, isn't just this idea of I'm on my knees mumbling pious words. Um, those the, there's a, there's a place for that, but it's more about balance. You know, the ever since the 1960s, which our country has yet to recover from, um, you know, the, the word peace has just been butchered beyond recognition. You know, you you have these hippies going around holding their two fingers and going, "Peace, dude." You know, with with the, with the Vietnam War going on, and um, you know, most in most people's mind, peace is just means just the absence of conflict, and. Um, and that's not what it is. You know, the, the Hebrew word shalom 
means, again, it means wholeness. It means balance. It means being in right relationship with God and with neighbor. You know, it's a desire for people's health. You know, when, when, if, you know, when two Hebrew and two Jewish guys meet each other, you know, Shalom Yitzhak, Shalom Ibrahim, you know, and, and when they're saying Shalom, they're saying, you know, health to you, blessing to you wholeness, balance, you know, be in good, right relationship with, with, with God and with neighbor and with the world and, you know, when you're, you know, inner peace within yourself. Um, instead of saying all that, you just say shalom, you know, which is a great word. And, and, you know, peace would have probably meant that too, except that the 60s butchered it. And so now, you know, when we at mass, you know, now that the pandemic is over, um, you know, a lot of, you know, places have gone back, let's, let us offer to one another a sign of peace. Well, again, we're not desiring someone else just to have a, a lack of violence or a lack of conflict. You know, we're, it's a desire for all these things which I just described of, you know, holiness, of wholeness, of balance, of, you know, being in right relationship with all these other things. You know, back in the, in the earliest days of the church, during the persecutions, um, it was, you know, people's metal was tested. You know, do you really want to be a Christian or not? Is it worth losing your job? Is it worth being fed by the lions and so forth to, to become a Christian? And then after the Edict of Milan in 383 AD, when Christianity was made legal, and then later on when it kind of became the, the official religion of the Roman Empire, there were people that were kind of going, yeah, we were back in the days when it really meant something to be a Christian. You know, it was it was tough. It was hard. And if you, you know, if you stepped out of line, you know, the authorities were there to, you know, make your life miserable and so on. And so, but now that, you know, Christianity is accepted and, you know, if you want to get anywhere, you have to be a Christian. It doesn't have the oomph that it used to. And that's how the monastic movement was born. Mm -hmm. And so you had people moving out into the desert, the desert fathers and the desert mothers. And, you know, again, adopting this life of total asceticism, you know, eating next to nothing and, you know, living with, you know, and facing the, you know, the harsh realities of nature, the hot and the cold and so on, and thinking, okay, well, we're going to, you know, we're going to, you know, find some true Christianity doing this. And you have guys like St. Benedict that said, no, you know, that's not holiness. That's not wholeness. That's not balance. That's not shalom, you know. And so St. Benedict came in with the rule of St. Benedict that, you know, it, it's a demanding rule. It isn't like the Benedictine monks are on vacation every day. Um, it's a demanding rule, but it also allows for the fact that there has to be some recreation. People need to have some downtime. You know, then the, there has to be a, you know, a balance to that. So, again, I, I would say, you know, the first thing when we're talking about holiness is to understand precisely what it is. And the reason why it's not for wimps is because maintaining that balance is a daily chore. I mean, you know, w you know, one particular day, like if I'm on vacation, I'm going to be playing all day long. That's what I do. That's why I go on vacation. But other days, you know, I might work 20 days straight without a day off. Well, that's not really balance, you know, any more than, you know, again, if someone's got, you know, money to burn and they think they can just live a life of, of of, of playing and goofing off, that's not balance either. And so, again, it's a, achieving that balance and that wholeness is what's difficult, and that's why it's not for wimps, is because it, it requires a conscious effort on our part and, um, and, and no small amount of prayer so that we're constantly open to the promptings of the Holy Spirit that that balance is, 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 is achieved and maintained. So, again, I, you know, as you know, 
who am I to argue with Mother Angelica? You know, I mean, she was she was right on the nose on that one. Yeah. So, um, what I wanted I wanted to start this this whole thing off just again reminding folks exactly what holiness is. You know, yeah. that again, a lot of times what what people think of is holiness is really just kind of some you know over the top you know piety, um, which almost borders on kookiness sometimes. Um, it is. Uh, that's not to say that you know the people that are in cloistered monasteries and convents, you know that do. That's their apostolate. That's their job is you know to pray for the salvation of the world, and that's all well and good. But um, that's not for 99.999 percent of the population. You know the rest of us have to go about our work and see to our responsibilities and so on. So therefore, again, holiness is more about wholeness and balance, and. Um, and you know achieving that is not easy that's why it's not for wimps um but i kind of wanted there's the the next piece i kind of wanted to go into um really doesn't so much i mean it's all about holiness i guess in one way or another but um i wanted to talk about covenant a little bit because again that's one of those you know kind of churchy sounding words and um people think well you know how do what does covenant have to do with you know my daily life as a you know electrician or a accountant or a plumber or something like that you know and um and so i thought we would we would look at what a covenant is and what a covenant is not and you know why we're you know kind of in a in a a pickle right now because of of our confusion as to what what a covenant is the the main thing to understand i think is that as christians our faith is not about assenting to a bunch of propositions okay our faith is not about, you know, well, I follow the Ten Commandments. Well, I follow the precepts of the church. Well, you know, I follow the Beatitudes, and that what's, that's what makes me a Christian. That's not true. What makes us a Christian is our relationship with a person, with the Son of God. Okay? And so um, that, that's, that's, a, that, you know, that's kind of the, the first piece to, to get straight in our skulls. Um, you, know, a, you know, a religion, if you, you know, I think it was Buddha who said, you know, don't look at me, look at my teachings. Whereas Jesus says, no, come to me. Come to me, who, you who are weary. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the bread come down from heaven. I am the good shepherd, okay? And so, and really, I mean, when I, when I say this, I've taught this many number of times, like when I'm doing adult eds and things like that. And um, people, when you say it, people kind of look at, did you really mean to say that? Yeah, I did, okay? And that is... Christianity is a cult because when you look at cults, cults are based or are, are are centered around individuals. Okay, and so like you know the Jim Jones cult, you know the guy that held the people drink the Kool Aid down in Guyana years ago and committed mass suicide, or the Reverend Min Sung Moon, you know the Moonies and so on. You know the, the, it's like well you know they're, they're all around this cult leader. Yeah, they are, and so are we. It's just that our cult leader happens to be the Son of God, and so you can't go wrong. Um, you know, when, when the cult leader is, is, some, is some human being, that's when problems begin. But, but our, fa- our faith is not a bunch of propositions. It's not a philosophy. It contains that. It contains a philosophy for living. It contains a, n- a number of propositions. But our faith is about, you know, as St. Paul says in the letter of the Galatians, you know, the life I live is not my own, but the life I live, you know, for, for the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so I think that's the first thing to understand is that, you know, that, uh, that our faith is about a relationship with a person. And therefore, you know, it's about a covenant, okay? Because as, as, as opposed to a contract, 
And that's where we have the problem, I think, is because with a contract, you have an exchange of goods, okay, you know, as you learn with commerce. You know, I will, you know, I give you the $35,000, you give me the new car. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's, you know, contracts are exchanges of goods. And you can also have an exchange of ideas. And so they talk about the social contract. And you know, that would be, you know, I agree not to steal from you, you agree not to steal from me. Or, you know, the contract we have with the government. You know, I pay you taxes, then you muster up the army to defend me or whatever, mm-hmm. okay? And so, you know, the, that, you know there you have the there's idea of a contract um, with, with an exchange of goods. But a covenant is an exchange of persons, okay? And so, you know, the, the, the closest, you know, the most immediate thing that we have now is the idea of marriage. I mean, that's the easiest one to understand because it's right in front of most of our eyes, although I'll get to this in a second. Um, in marriage, you have one person giving themselves completely over to the other, okay? Mm-hmm. And that's why it's a covenant because each is giving him or herself over to the other person who is in, who is in turn giving him or herself back. And so there you have a covenant. And um, the reason why I sort of you know, bring up a little you know caveat on that the other day I was teaching class. I got about I have two I have two different sections. One has eleven kids and one has fifteen. And so it was my class of fifteen kids, and the whole thing about marriage came up. I said, "How many of you guys have been to a wedding in the last couple of years?" Only about two kids raised their hands. Oh my. I mean, it's just amazing. Oh you know, people just are not getting married anymore. And um, and and you know that is really contributing incredibly sadly to the social chaos that we have. When you look at the social mayhem and chaos that we have, you know, it used to be what what held it all together was mom and dad, you know, being there at home and you know being the hub of the family. Um, you know, you talk to anybody, probably I don't know, fifty, sixty or older, and the, one of the one of the stories all of us have in common is. You know, we would say, you know, yeah, if we got in trouble at school or even if you got in trouble by, by the police, we didn't care. Just don't let it get home. Because if mom and dad found out they were up to some kind of, you know, trouble, then there was hell to pay. You know, we, we could deal with being in trouble at school, being in trouble with the principal or whatever. Um, I remember there, there was a, um, one of the, there was a, fam- a famous Ellis County citizen, Bob Maxwell. A lot of people know Bob, I think. Right. He died some years ago. And um, he used to be on the on the Hayes Police Department. And my dad, when he was growing up in Hayes, he was kind of a little bit of a miscreant. And um, he and his buddies were out raising hell, and, and Bob just come up to him and says, you boys just need to go home now. And, you know, didn't have to arrest him, didn't have to take him downtown, just the authority of Bob, because Bob knew that these kids' parents at home, you know, the, that that's all the authority he needed. He didn't have to rely on the authority of his badge. He had the authority of these kids' parents at home. And the kids knew that. And so they could be out causing trouble. And Bobby said, you, you, you boys need to get home. And then they did. Why? Because there's a mom and a dad at home, you know, to back everything up. And now, again, like I said, I, I was just, you know, I was trying to draw a, a, a parallel or make an example, at, you know, from the, from the book about marriage and everything. And I said, well, how many of you guys have been to a wedding in the last couple of years? And only a couple of them raised their hand. And one of the girls just says, nobody gets married anymore. And um, and again, so you know, we want to know why we're in such a, a pickle. That's one of the reasons is we've lost the idea of covenant, of, yeah. of the idea of, of one person giving themselves completely over, you know, to the good of the other. Mm-hmm. And um, 
and so like I said, you know, the, 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 the most immediate experience of covenant we would have here on earth would be that of marriage, um, which then, as St. Paul tells us in the letter to the, uh, to the Ephesians, that, you know, the, the, that's a, a, a shadow here on earth of the great covenant of Christ giving himself completely over to us. Um, the idea of Jesus giving himself completely over to us, that is, to the church, and the church giving itself completely back to Christ is, the, you know, this covenantal relationship, this nuptial relationship between God and humanity. And, of course, the thing of it is, is when you have so many people now, I mean, here at the cathedral, 70% of the wedding, of the baptisms that I do are, are kids of unwed or unwed mothers or, you know, the mom and the dad hooked up and started making babies and they want to get their kid baptized. Why, I don't know. Um, but, I mean, we could talk about that later. But, um, <laughs> but the, the whole thing is, is, is again, you know, you, you've got, you know, like I say, 70% of the kids, parents aren't married or dad's nowhere around. Mm-hmm. How are these kids going to have the slightest inkling of what a covenant is? Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you know, we, we got this idea of, of contract, and, you know, we need contracts. You know, how are you going to conduct business without a contract? you got to have it. Um, but whenever we confuse a contract with a covenant, then we got problems. And, um, you know, for example, in the state of Kansas, marriage falls under the purview of contract law. Mm-hmm. And for the same reason, then, you know, whenever, whenever you have, you know, if, if I enter into a contractual relationship with somebody and say, you know, I'm going to sell some piece of junk that I have for an agreed, about, agreed, agreed upon amount of money, and then we get together and we've made this agreement, but then me and the person that had made the agreement looking at it and going, eh, the guy's going, I don't think I want to buy it, and I'm going, you know, I don't think I want to sell it. And, and the guy, well, I think I'd just soon keep my money, and I'm going, I think I'd just soon keep my piece of junk. You know, we can both walk away from the deal, right. you know, by mutual consent. Well, you know, when, when, when the state sees marriage as just another form of contract, well, then, of course, the couples can trot on down to the divorce court and walk on in and walk away from the deal. You know, why not? Now, the thing of it is, the problem is when, when you make a covenant into a contract, then the persons in the relationships become things. And so then the persons in the relationships, when they can be objectified into things, that's that's pornography. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, basically, you know, everybody thinks of you know, well, pornography, dirty pictures. No, it's not. I mean, you know, that's part of it. But as Pope Saint John Paul the Great said, the problem with pornography is it's not that it shows too much; is that it shows too little. You know, it doesn't show the the the, the you know the, these people that are in these pictures or movies or whatever. It does it doesn't show them as being sons and daughters of God. It doesn't show their inner desire for life and for what's good and, you know, what they have in mind, you know, for their future and, you know, just, you know, what makes them an individual, what makes them, you know, some, some, you know, some unique creation of God. It doesn't show any of that. And so, again, you know, it isn't that pornography shows too much. It doesn't show, it shows too little. It doesn't show near enough. And um, because if it did show everything, then people would want nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. Well, again, it's the same thing. If, 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 if we take the covenant and just make it a contract, it doesn't show enough of it. It just, it just makes the persons and the relationships a commodity. And the state can come in and say, well, you know, that contract doesn't exist anymore. It's called a divorce. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, you know, again, we have all the, 
the, the, the social chaos that comes from that. Hmm. You know, back in the, I remember back in the early 60s, in late, not the early 60s, I was born in the early 60s, about 67, 68, 69, when I was, you know, 6, 7, 8, 9 years old, old enough to start listening. You know, I'd hear my mom and dad talking about stuff with their friends and so on. And back in those days, it was um, the, the I don't really have all the, the timeline down on this. I'm just kind of going by some fuzzy memories. But I do remember that um, Las, the Nevada was the first state to allow for no-fault divorce. And that was, you know, we just don't want to be married anymore. Um, the, one, of, one of my attorney buddies there in Hayes, good old Don Staub of Happy Memory, he died some years ago too. Mm-hmm. You know, he and I were chatting one time. He says, oh, yeah. He, he says, back when I, you know, first got out of law school, he talked about there was some famous judge here in Ellis County. I forgot his name, but he would have been a judge like back in the 1950s. Um, he said, you know, a couple came in, you know, petitioning a divorce. You had to prove one of the three A's. You had to prove adultery, abandonment, or abuse. And if you couldn't prove one of those, the judge said, you took vows, get out there and figure it out. They didn't, you know, they just didn't, they didn't just hand out divorces. And Nevada was the first state to say, well, okay, if you don't want to be married anymore just because you don't want to be married anymore, we recognize that. Well, then, because of the full faith and credit clause of the Constitution, you had people streaming to Nevada to get these, you know, no-fault divorces. Well, then... You know, the surrounding states are going, well, they just go to Nevada anyway. We might as well just allow for it. And the next thing you know, you've got the whole country allowing for no-fault divorce. Um, are there relationships that are toxic and, and that are so bad that some kind of dramatic intercession, in, intervention has to be done? Yeah, there is. But enough to say that 50% of these relationships are just doomed from the beginning or that they couldn't be salvaged or that people couldn't work through their problems... I don't think so, you know. Mm-hmm. And so when, whenever we take the idea of covenant, of this exchange of persons, and just change it into an exchange of goods, you get what we got. Mm-hmm. And, um, and again, you know, when you look around, you look at the, the troubles that we're having in schools. I mean, I, I think there's a direct relationship. One of, one of my best friends lives in Manhattan, grew up in, in Idaho. And he was telling me, he says, yeah, he goes, and I was going to high school, and he goes, we had a riflery class. And kids would go to their locker and drop off their math book and pick up their twenty two in a box of shells and walk down the hall with a rifle slung over their shoulder, going to the, going to the rifle range. You know, and so, you know, what's changed from, you know, 1952 or 1953 to 2023? And again, I think it goes back to, you know, the idea that we don't, understand marriage as a covenant we understand it as a contract and then once we trashed marriage on many fronts we trashed family and that's what brings in all all this violence and stuff Mm -hmm. so again i think you know again it's it's as pornographic as what it is because it reduces people to things Mm -hmm. and um and so again i think it's you know it's a big piece of the healing of our culture if it's going to happen is going to be that we're going to have to recover a sense of what covenant is about. We need to take a short break right now, but don't change that dial. Holiness, Covenant, and Eucharist with Father Fred Gatchett will be right back here on the Network of Stations of Divine Mercy Radio.
We're back on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. Holiness, Covenant, and Eucharist. Father Fred Gatchett. Donetta Robin conducts the interview. Father Fred, my question is twofold. One thing you said, our Catholic faith is a relationship with Jesus. For somebody who doesn't know how to begin a relationship with Jesus, what would you suggest? That's one question. And my second question is um, regarding marriage and morality. How do we get how do we get back to where we were, like in the fifties and sixties? Well, early 60s, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let, let's, um, let's answer the first one first. Okay. You know, we, we're, we're in the middle of the Easter season, and just last Sunday we had the story of the walk to Emmaus, and also in the, at weekday Mass during the, during the octave of Easter, we have the story of the walk to Emmaus from the Gospel of St. Luke. And um, that is a rather significant story. I mean, people would do well to go back and read that and reread that. Because as we know, the way the story goes, Cleophas and his traveling companion, which a lot of scripture scholars think is his wife, they're going along, they're talking about all this stuff that's happened over the last three or four days with Jesus being arrested and tortured and crucified and now people saying he's risen from the dead and you know they're just beside themselves trying to sort through all this stuff. And then Jesus comes up and walks next to him and they don't recognize him. And um, he goes, what are you guys talking about? And they go, are you kidding? You've been under a rock somewhere? You Haven't you heard what's been going on in Jerusalem these last few days? Oh, no, what? You know, well, you know, about Jesus, you know, the great prophet, you know, and, you know, our, our leaders handed him over to, to be crucified, and now, you know, some women from our group say he's risen from the dead. And then, you know, Jesus says, oh, you know, you slow, you, you thick skulls, you know, you don't get it. You know, the Messiah was supposed to suffer. And then it says he goes through Moses and the prophets, and explains all the scriptures that apply to himself. Now, the thing is, is that there you have the actual author of the Bible explaining the Bible. Mm -hmm. Okay, because the rule of St. Athanasius, what we say of one member of the Trinity, we must say of all the other members of the Trinity as well. And so if we say that the Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures, then we must also say that Jesus Christ inspired the scriptures, and that God the Father inspired the scriptures, because there's three persons but one God. And so here you have the guy who inspired the scriptures himself explaining the Bible. I mean, anybody that, that has any kind of a relationship with the Word of God would have loved to have been a fly on the wall during that conversation, listening to what Jesus had to say about the reading, about the scriptures, now they refer to him. And so, you know, they, they, they go into, they get to the house where they're going, and it says Jesus gave the impression he was going on further. They say, no, come in and stay with us. And so he, so he goes in, and it says, while they were at table, you know, the famous verbs, he took the bread, said the blessing, broke it, and gave it to them. Took, blessed, broke, gave. The very same verbs that are used at the Last Supper, the very same verbs that are used at the multiplication of the loaves and fish. And it says, there, then they recognized him, but he vanished from their sight. Mm -hmm. Then they go back to Jerusalem, and, you know, they find the eleven, because Judas is dead, and, um, and they say, yeah, the Lord has been raised. He's appeared to Simon. And it says, then they recounted what had taken place on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Not how he was made known to them in the reading of the Bible. 
how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Mm. So what it seems to me is, is that, you know, if we are going to come to know who the person of Jesus is, it's going to have to be somehow through the sacrament of the Eucharist. Mm. And, um, and I think it's, gonna, it's firstly going to be through the worthy reception of the sacrament of the Eucharist, which means that we've got to get to confession. As St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you know, he says, you know, before we, before we eat of the bread or drink of the cup, we should examine ourselves. Well, you know, that's code for going to confession. Because whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup in an overthrow manner is answerable to the body and blood of the Lord. And that's what we call a sacrilege. And so I think that um, if you have someone that, you know, maybe they're kind of a, you know, Catholic in name only and they go, well, I just never saw much use to it. And people talk about this Jesus guy. Heck, I never met him. I don't know who he is. He never revealed himself to me. Well, get yourself to confession and get yourself to communion. And not just once, you know, do it over and over and over again. And you can't help but to get to know who the guy is because that's exactly what happened in, you know, with that story with the walk to Emmaus. Um, You know, and and you look throughout the history of the church. I always tell people when I'm teaching Bible study classes and so on, like, you know, another, another hour I'm going to be in school teaching my kids. And, you know, the fact that I can have 15 kids in the classroom, each of them has a Bible in front of them. And I can say, okay, gang, you know, let's go look at, let's look up 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you know, and see what St. Paul says there. And they all get their little Bibles out and they all open it up. You know, what page is that on, Father? You know, page 138. Okay. And then, you know, now look at verse 14 and then we read it together. That's only been possible in Christianity for maybe the past hundred years. Mm-hmm. You know, because before that, people either couldn't read or two, books were so dang expensive, no one could afford them. And, you know, you'd have to go to the library and maybe borrow one or something like that. But, but the idea of, you know, books right now are just everywhere and they're cheap. And anybody that wants to get one can get one and read it. But that's not always been the case. And so what happened, you know, for those centuries and centuries and centuries where people couldn't read a Bible, much less, you know, reflect upon it or whatever, or study it or whatever, how do they come to know Jesus? Through the breaking of the bread. They went to Mass. Mm-hmm. Just like the walk to Emmaus, you've got the two principal parts of Mass there. You've got the liturgy of the Word, when Jesus is explaining the Scriptures, and the liturgy of the Eucharist, when he takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it. You know, the, the two basic elements of Mass are right there in that story. And, um, and so it says, you know, our hearts were burning within us as he explained the scriptures to us. You know, that's kind of an emotional response, a burning heart. Mm-hmm. But then we came to know him in the breaking of the bread. And so, you know, I think that's, you know, that's where it's going to have, it's going to have to end up there. Mm-hmm. Um, in the meantime, you know, we, we get to know the person of Jesus, you know, by reading the gospels and then trying to imitate, you know, what he told us to do about feeding the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the sick you know, the Beatitudes and things like that. It's all kind of a part of a big package deal. But I think if someone really wants to know who the person of Jesus is, it's going to have to, you know, it's going to have to begin somehow in the sacrament of the Eucharist. Okay, Father Fred, what do you think the hardest part is for people? I don't think it's hard for them to go to communion, but it's hard for them to get to confession. And how can we promote that more? And, well, and why is it hard for him? Well, the thing is, you know, we're, we're in the middle of this Eucharistic revival that they're talking about. You know, that the bishops are saying that, you know, I mean, you, I think it was one of those religious studies that they, um, they 
you know, they'll sit there and say, well, you know, 50% of Catholics approve of abortion. You know, over 50% of Catholics approve of same-sex marriage. And it's like, okay, yeah, but now why don't you narrow, why don't you get a little bit more scientific about your poll here? And when you ask people, are you Catholic? Yes. Then the next question should be, do you go to Mass on Sunday? You know, because a lot of people out there call themselves Catholics and they've been to Mass in 20 years. And when you ask them what they think about abortion and same-sex marriage, they're going to be all for it. But when you ask people to go to Mass on Sunday, you get a totally different response. Well, the problem was, was that they were asking about this, you know, asking people, um, are, are you Catholic? Yeah, do you go to Mass on Sunday? Oh, yeah, I go to Mass every Sunday. Okay, when you go up and get that little wafer, what is that? And only about 30% of the Catholics are saying, pardon me, that is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. That is God himself. You had 60-some percent of Catholics going, oh, it's a symbol of Jesus. It's a representation of Jesus somehow. And, you know, the, the bishops rightly are in panic mode going, my gosh, we've got we to get this fixed up. Well, you know, there, there's all kinds of ideas buzzing around. You know, how do, we, how do we fix this? How do we get this, you know, people understanding exactly what the sacrament of the Eucharist is about? And, you know, there's, there's going to be, in the next couple of years, there's going to be a flurry of ideas floating around. You know, well, let's have more holy hours. The holy hours are great. Nothing wrong with that. You know, let's, let's you know, have more catechesis. And, well, that's all well and good. But I think that unless and until we reconnect the receiving of the Eucharist with, with being in the state of grace, you know, receiving the, um, the, you know, the sacrament of reconciliation, this isn't going to go anywhere. Um, I think that, you know, at one time, I forgot who said this. I think I heard it on Catholic Radio. It might have been old Father Benedict Rochelle. Someone said that, um, you know, I'm tired of being nagged by my conscience. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it was Father Benedict. He, said, he goes, he goes if, you wanna, if you wanna kill your conscience to where it will never bother you again, he said, go out and commit a mortal sin. Commit the most heinous mortal sin that you can commit without going to jail. And then march up and defiantly go to communion. That will kill your conscience, and you will never have to worry about your conscience bothering you again. Uh-uh. And I thought, you know, that's rather profound. And see, I just wonder how many people have, you know, committed conscience suicide without even knowing it. Absolutely. You know, you know we'll, we'll sit there and we'll go, well, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. I admit I drank too much last weekend, and I had sex with my girl. It's not like I killed anybody. You know, get off my back, okay? Mm-hmm. And it, you know, in most people's mind, that's you know, that's the mortal sin is murder. Well, that's a mortal sin. But if you look up Galatians chapter five verses nineteen and following, Saint Paul gives us a very long laundry list of mortal sins. He talks about fornication, licentiousness, idolatry, factions, envy, jealousy. You know all these various things and he says I warn you as I warned you before those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God well that by definition means it's a mortal sin and so there's this big long list of mortal sins there that I think a lot of people just kind of made friends with and kind of going well I mean it's not like I killed someone it's, it's not that bad and then they march up and go to communion and they've de facto killed their conscience well with a dead conscience how are you going to understand you know, the sublime teaching of Jesus being present under the forms of bread and wine. It's just, it's not, it's going to go right past us. Mm-hmm. So, again, I think that, you know, the, the, the path to recovery on that is getting people to understand that going to communion goes hand-in-hand with going to confession. 
because I'm not going to go through the experience of going to confession just to go receive some symbol. Right, absolutely. Now, why is it hard? Why is it difficult? Um, because none of us likes to admit that we're wrong. Right. You know, it, it's a humbling experience. It's part of the medicine of going to confession. Um, you know, we do have a forum in our culture where you go behind closed doors and you're told to, you know, be as totally as open and honest as you can, or this session's not going to do you much good. It's called counseling, mm-hmm. um, and it costs $300 an hour. Right. Um, the church has been providing this service free for centuries. <laughs> That's so true. And, um, <laughs> and so I think that, you know, that might be something, you know, to think about. It's just like, well, you know, if, if I went to a counselor, I'd be saying the same thing. But, you know, as G.K. Chesterton said, you know, psychology is confession without the absolution. Mm-hmm. You know, when you get through your counseling, you get a bill. When you get through the confession, you get absolution. Yeah, and, and um, great peace with that absolution. Exactly. <laughs> and see, again, I think that's one of the reasons why we have a dearth of priests. You know, you, you, any, any, any young man, you know, any, any, they, they say that the vocation bug usually bites when boys are in junior high. So, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, is when, if they're going to think about the priesthood, that's usually when it starts. And I'm sitting there going, what 14-year-old is going to go, yeah, I'm going to set my life on a trajectory where I'm going to serve a symbol for the rest of my life? Mm-hmm. You know, who would do that? You have to be out of your mind. Right. Um, but if you understand, you know, that no, you know, I am going to spend my life bringing the very person of Christ to people who need him and providing people with the means to receive that worthily, the sacrament of reconciliation, then yeah, then the priesthood's worth it all. It's worth all the sacrifices. It's worth everything that goes into it. Oh yeah, yeah. You're bringing yeah people to heaven. So I'm just wondering what we as a church can do to to evangelize all this. The second question you had was how do we how do we get back on kind of a more firm exactly a more firm footing? You know, kind of what we had in the maybe in the in the you know in the post World War II era. And, um, and the thing is, I, I think, number one, I, I'm always kind of hesitant to kind of try to, you know, come up with a golden age, you know, thinking that, well, you know, you know, back from 19-whatever to 19-whatever, you know, all was, all was good in America. You know, because, you know, you look back in the, you know, people like to look back in the 1950s, and there was a lot going right in the 1950s, a lot of good things back in those days. Um, there was also things like polio, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, you know, also, I mean, let's face it. I mean, there's been, you know, domestic violence and all these kinds of forms of abuse. And so that's just been around forever. Um, but it's, it hasn't been around, I think, to the, to the degree that it is now. And the thing is, uh, there, I think the reason why um, we keep on going on, you know, slouching down this road that we're on is because we have money. And um, when, because back in the days before, you know, we, we spent all this money on all these various programs, it, we, we, we depended, you know, you had to have a mom and a dad and a nuclear family to bear the load, to hold the, thing, hold the whole thing up. Now that we've trashed the nuclear family, it was a glorious time, said, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. 
you know, you know, now that we've trashed nuclear family, and then we've trashed everything else that goes along with it. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I self-identify as a male on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, but on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, I self-identify as a female, and on Sundays, I toss a coin, you know, and, and who are you to judge otherwise, you know, because you're full of hate. Well, the thing is, is the only reason why we can do this is because we, when you look at the, when you look at the chaos that comes out of this, and you look at the, you know, what happens with the families and the schools and so on, we have money that we can, you know, spend all kinds of extra, um, for all kinds of extra personnel, you know, when, when, when you have the, the kind of the, the way I draw the lines a lot, draw, connect the dots for a lot of people is, you got Billy Bob and Lula Bell that just hooked up. And they made a baby. In fact, mm-hmm. they hooked up, they stayed around long enough to make two or three babies. And so now the oldest kid is eight years old. And whenever Billy Bob and Lula Bell get into a tiff, you know, the tactical nuclear warhead each of them has waiting in the closet is, look, we ain't married. I don't have to put up with this. I'm out of here. And so maybe one of them gets pretty mad and storms out the door. Well, you got some eight-year-old kid that's there and probably doesn't have much of a concept of what marriage is about. All he knows is that's mommy and that's daddy, and mommy just got mad and left. Mm-hmm. And the kid goes to school the next day, has to take a spelling test. How's he going to do on the spelling test? Obviously, he's going to do terrible because he's you know got a, a lot of other more important things on his mind. Yeah. And so then the you know the school system, primarily the public school system, sees all of this you know this social chaos and mayhem going on. They see their Iowa basics test scores going down the tank, and you know the ACT scores and all these things, and going well. We got to hire on more people you know, to help these kids, these at-risk kids, you know, to help them keep their grades up and help them learn something. And, you know, since we, since we have the money on hand to make up for the social chaos, then that's, you know, we, we just keep on going down that same road. I think, you know, and what, what it's going to take to get us back is going to, it's going to take a giant collapse. Mm-hmm. And that, um, you know, as, as we keep on borrowing and printing money like it's going out of style, Eventually, the world's going to look at the U.S. dollar and say, "That's a nice roll of toilet paper you got there, boys," <laughs> and um, and and that's as far as it's going to go. And then, you know, then we're going to find ourselves in a world of hurt, and we're going to find ourselves looking back and going, "Well, the only way to wait, make this work is we're going to have to get in there together as a community, and you know, pull together and make this make this work like we did, you know, a long time ago." Um, because, like I said, I, I don't think there's any program or any, you know, kind of, I don't know, some again, some kind of a program that's gonna that's gonna turn everything back and you know put things back on the right track. I think it's gonna take a, you know, probably a significant um, traumatic event that's gonna you know kind of slap us upside of the head and make us you know get back on track. Yeah, I I agree with you there, um, but I think it will eventually maybe not in our lifetime but it will so so father fred what else can we talk about here <laughs> well, <laughs> we've got the, about the, 10 more minutes yeah well as i said you know i just wanted to kind of hit those again i just want to go back again and maybe for the folks that maybe just tuned in review just a little bit and we talked a little bit about you know what exactly is holiness and holiness is again it's not you know people you know hold up in some church someplace praying 24 hours a day. Um, it means wholeness. It means balance. 
you know, I mean, you know, so that, um, you know, with our, our work, our play, our prayer, our responsibilities, you know, our, our rest, all these things that are necessary to keep us balanced and whole, that's what holiness is. And, um, and again, you know, with, with the Second Vatican Council, with the universal call to holiness, and with groups like Opus Dei that try to bring, you know, the Christian message and holiness, you know, balance into, you know, daily life, you know, that's, you know, kind of where, where we find that. And, um, and then, you know, we talked to them about a contract and a covenant, and that, you know, as, as Christians, we're a covenant people, that um, Christianity is not about some guy saying nice words, although Jesus did say a lot of good words, and it's not about good teachings, although Jesus gave a lot of good teachings. It's about a covenant relationship. It's about an exchange of persons mm-hmm. with the second person of the Blessed Trinity. You know, that we give ourselves completely over to him. He gave himself completely over to us on the cross. And so, and then, and then the, the, the sort of the sacrament or the icon that we have of that nuptial relationship of Jesus with us is marriage. You know, that's, that's the one thing that people are supposed to be able to look at and go, well, you know, the man gives himself completely over to the woman. The woman gives herself completely over to the man. You know, till death do they part. You know, and then the sacrament of matrimony, and um, and and in so doing, then that's where you know we have that that image of the of the covenant, you know, here on earth. Again, sad to say, you know, I, with my kids at school, you know, very there's there are more and more young people that are growing up never having gone to a wedding, yeah, and um, or only going to very few of them, and and yeah. and that's having a, a kind of a deleterious effect on things. Mm-hmm. I know that. Um, one, these were you know, stories from when I was in Hayes. Um, it was, uh, for whatever reason, I used to get called to the hospital a lot on Sunday afternoons um, because I think when I was at the campus center there for 20 years, I would always answer the phone. And, um, and I think a lot of times on Sunday afternoons, the other parishes, they just had the answering machine on. And so I'd answer the phone and, you know, well, Father, this is so-and-so. I'm a nurse up at, you know, Hayes Med, and, you know, so-and-so just died, and they're asking for a priest, and so I'd go up there. And, um, and there was this man, you know, the, his wife had died. She was there, you know, laying there dead in the bed. And the husband is there, and he's kind of, you know, beside himself, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And a couple of the kids are there. And so I said the prayers for the dead, for the woman and everything. And I was talking to the guy, and I said, well, I said, I said how long have you and Clarabelle been married? And, and the guy just with just total, you know, how would you put it? I mean, he was just completely taken over by the moment, you know, and he said, we were married for 65 years, wow. a little bit of a pause, and he says, not near long enough. Wow, that's you know? awesome. I mean, you know, <laughs> that guy understood what covenant was. Yes. And then yeah. there was another time I got called to the hospital, there was a man there, and, and um, he was he was in pretty bad shape. He had stomach cancer really badly. And um, and so they called me up, and, and again, they usually don't do a very good job of telling you what you're getting into. You have to learn how to, you know, sound the whole situation out when you get there to find out what's going on. And so I get up there and, you know, hey, Carl, you know, I forgot what the name, guy's name was. And um, I said, what can I do? I'm Father Fred, they called me up, and what can I do for you? Well, I'm just not doing too good, Father. They don't, they don't think I'm going to make it to the end of the week, you know. And his wife was there, and she was kind of teary-eyed and, and I said, really? I said, well, what's the problem? He said, well, he goes, I got stomach cancer. And he goes, it spread all through my belly. And he goes, I'm just in pretty bad shape. And um, I said, well, okay. I said, um, do you want to receive the anointing of the sick then? Well, yes, I would like that. I said, do you want to go to communion? Yeah, I don't know, Father. My stomach be in the way it is. 
and he made a most profound statement. You had better let my wife go to communion for me. Oh, my. And I thought, man, I'll bet there's some kind of a, there's, there's a theological doctoral dissertation in that somewhere. Yeah. You know, that was, a, that was one of the most profound statements I've ever heard somebody say. You know, that, um, you know, this guy, you know, as as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, wife for all you know, you may save your husband, husband for all you know, you may save your wife. You know, that that, that, that marriage covenant is such a a profound thing that, you know, and and it it, it has such, you know, far-reaching, you know, consequences that even, you know, that that the husband and the wife, their very salvation is bound up with each other. And, um, and, and again, for this man to say, if my wife goes to communion for me, it's just as good. I don't know. There might be some theologian might argue with that, but I thought that was just pretty dang profound. Yeah. Well, Father Fred, uh, thank you so much for coming on the air. And um, could you leave us with your blessing? Sure. May Almighty God bless you and keep you. Let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you kindly and give you his peace, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. If you're a business or service that can underwrite this Double-Edged Sword show, please know that your underwriting spot can run three times during the show, which runs five times a week. The cost for all five stations is a mere $250 per month. Interested? Call 785-621-4110. You're listening to the Network of Stations of Divine Mercy Radio. If today you hear his voice, harden not your heart.